This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Dina Kapernakis and is from Sanctity of Life Sunday, 2018. A note for our listeners, this sermon contains graphic medical details. Good morning, Church of Resurrection. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank uh, so many of you who have known us over the years, who have prayed for my family, my children, for me personally, and for your continued prayers. I don't know where we would be without you all, and you're just all so very dear to us, and we love this church so much. So a few years ago, our life was very good. I was a practicing attorney, and my Jason Postma, my wonderful husband, and I were raising our three children, and we were pregnant with our fourth child. Specifically, I'm going to take you back to September 11th, 2011, September 21st, 2011. We were at the hospital for the ultrasound, which is a test that's usually performed halfway through a pregnancy, usually at about 20 weeks. And we were excited about the test. We had had three prior ultrasound tests and got to see all the beautiful images of the baby we were awaiting. So this time we decided to bring our kids. Jana, our daughter Jana, was six years old at that time. Our daughter Ellie was four years old at that time. And our son Constantine was almost two. We brought them with us. We're going to go to the test. We'll get to see the baby. We'll find out the gender. We'll finalize the name, we'll go for pizza, we'll celebrate, it will be a grand old time. Now let's be honest, we were hoping for a boy. I had two girls, I had one son, he was tired of playing Barbies. You know, we thought another boy will level the playing field and would really just make us the oxymoronic perfect family. It's interesting that most parents don't even go down the road of anticipating health problems because, of course, that would seem very pessimistic. We spend all of our time during those early months just thinking about the gender of the baby and the names of the baby. So here we are now in the ultrasound room awaiting this great moment. The technician was... I was I lie down. For those of you that don't know, the technician has this little wand. They kind of rub across your belly, and then all these images appear up on the screen. You can't really tell what they are unless you're trained. And the technician then usually comments like, oh, there's the fingers, there's the toes, there's the heart, uh, there's the baby's brain, oh, your baby's got a big brain, oh, you know, and they make all their little comments, and that's fun to see. In our case, however, the technician was saying nothing, not a word So we realized very soon how quiet it was, unusually quiet it was, and this test takes time. So, you know, I I couldn't resist any longer. I finally said, is everything okay? And as I looked at her face, I mean, it was so white, like she had seen a ghost. She didn't know what to say. She hardly looked at me and said, it's better if the doctor goes over the results with you. I knew we had a problem. 
After the test, she sent us back out to the lobby rather than directly to the doctor's office, where we proceeded to wait for a full hour or so, at which point we were advised that we'd been upgraded to see the head of the practice, all clear indications that something was terribly wrong with this baby. When uh, we went in with the doctor, she called us in. She immediately gave us a look and said, the kids are going to need to go into a separate room. And she pulled out her medical gloves and started blowing them up, her little hand medical gloves, into balloons and handing them to the children for them to play with. And then she took us into a separate room and sat us down. She said, it's bad. It's very bad. It's about as bad as it gets. Her heart is on the wrong side of her body. She has no visible brain tissue. Her entire brain is full of water. She may have some kind of club fist, something else about the umbilical cord strands. At this point, I could hardly think straight. Her conclusion after all of this was that the baby most likely had trisomy 13 or trisomy 18 chromosomal disorders, which are fatal, and that the baby could die at any time during the pregnancy. We skipped the pizza. We told the kids I had a headache, and we went home. The next day, we were transferred to Northwestern's uh, OBGYN group, where everyone is transferred when there's a high-risk medical condition such as this. Maternal fetal medicine is the name of the group. After dozens of tests, doctor's visits, specialists, I'll spare you the details, we were told that our daughter did not have trisomy 13 or trisomy 18 or any other genetic problem that was identifiable at that time. She did have severe congenital hydrocephalus, which for her meant that her entire brain was full of water, and there was the problem of her heart being on the wrong side of her body. Maternal fetal medicine told us that she had a 90 to 95% chance of death. It gets worse. They told us that if she lived, she would have a 0% chance of meaningful life. That's when I got the yellow legal pad out, and I just started writing. So let me, let me get this straight again. You said 0% chance, 0% chance of meaningful life. I, I couldn't get my mind around what they were telling me. They explained that she would be some combination of deaf, blind, constant seizures, unable to feed herself, unable to walk, unable to talk, basically unable to do anything. That is what is meant by the term meaningful life. Apparently in the medical world, meaningful life is measured by what you can do, your abilities. So therefore, we can assume that if you cannot do much or are totally dependent upon others, your life is deemed meaningless. We were also warned that even if she comes out goo-gooing, gagaing, sort of behaving as a normal baby, that we should not get excited or anticipate any further development because those are reflexive sort of movements and sounds, and they would not necessarily mean anything for her future development. Then on top of that, they said all kinds of scary things. She could be born with thousands of spleens, without a diaphragm, missing, uh, which would hold up her organs, missing many organs, 
Uh, no kidneys, because many of these things are too small to identify by ultrasound. And that her whole skull might collapse. That one topped the cake for me. Her whole skull might collapse. We were expecting sheer horror, worse than anything we had seen or heard of. So for many nights that followed, after I put the kids to bed, I had to keep it together for the kids, I'd put the kids to bed, Jason would be downstairs, I would go to my bedroom, frequently hiding in my closet, and I would just yell out before God, I would yell the words, no, 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 no. I just kept yelling no, I remember, and every curse word imaginable. I thought if I yell no enough times, he might hear me and somehow change the outcome. I just couldn't understand why this was happening to me. Then I'd move on to the self-blame. I'm such an idiot. It was my fault. Why did I wait so long to have kids? I was so stupid. I should have had kids in my 20s. Why did I even go for a fourth child? I should have stopped while I was ahead. I had three healthy children. I knew I was advanced in maternal age. I am an idiot. I remember feeling the world had closed in on me. I was stuck in this horrible situation. There was nothing I can do but wait on God. I kept trying to process all that had happened, how horrible that I'm now carrying this baby. It's going to die in my womb, or it's going to die in my arms, or even worse, it's going to live with no brain and be brain dead forever. Horrible. That's all I could think. Brutal and horrible are on the way. So naturally, all the high-risk doctors kept telling us that abortion would be a very reasonable thing to do in our circumstances. They told me that having an abortion would be much easier than having this baby. While Jason and I were scared to death, there is no question, we were in agreement, thanks be to God, that no matter how sick she was, we were not going to take any steps to end her life. We decided to name her Zoe Sophia, which means life and wisdom in the Greek language. After learning all this news at the four-month pregnancy mark, I was now pregnant for five more months. I was mourning the loss of a healthy baby for sure. I saw myself as just walking this road of obedience, but it was sad and depressing. It was horrible. Everyone's asking you, oh, how far are you? What are you going to name the baby? Is it a boy or a girl? It felt like I was walking the plank. There could be no good ending to this story. Most of the time, I remember not knowing what I should even pray for. I prayed that he would heal her. I prayed that she would get better. Other times, I prayed that he would take her. I would beg God to just take her. I prepared for her death. I bought books. I read books about sick babies, dying babies, babies dying in your womb, babies dying shortly after your 
birth. I was trying to prepare myself, disabled babies, uh, brain dead babies. I was trying to prepare myself. I went with my dad to the cemetery. We picked out a burial plot. I was going to bury her next to my grandparents who have passed. We picked out a burial outfit. We were ready for her to pass. From September then till December, we just kept praying for a miracle, that the water would subside, that she would get better. But instead, she kept getting worse. The water uh, kept increasing. The water pressure was expanding her skull. They told me that no matter how big her head got, it was too risky to take her out before week 39 because of how high risk she was, that she might not make it. I was scheduled then to finally have the C-section on January 26, 2012, at which point Zoe was 38 and a half weeks in utero. We had met with neonatologists. At that point, they were telling us the Zoe, that Zoe still might pass uh, in utero shortly. As soon as she comes out, she might just, her brain might not tell her body to breathe. She might live a few minutes, maybe a couple days, but that would be the extent of it. So we arranged for one of our priests at that time from Church of Resurrection, Father Kevin Miller, to be with us at the hospital, and he was prepared to baptize her upon her delivery should she make it. When the time for the C-section came, the C-section was underway. My husband was with me, and the doctors were struggling to get the baby's head out. Her enlarged head had become stuck in my uterus. So they made my incision larger, as large as they could make it. And they still couldn't get her head out. So I started complaining, I couldn't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Jason was telling them she's not breathing. Finally, my eyes rolled to the back of my head. I stopped breathing. Jason yells, Dina's not breathing. They immediately rush me out of the room and then they call in an army of doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists, all hands on deck. The doctors determined I was suffering from what's known as an amniotic fluid embolism, AFE. It's something that occurs in one in approximately 40,000 deliveries and is frequently fatal. It's an allergic reaction that happens when the mother's amniotic fluid escapes and enters the mother's bloodstream. It starts with trouble breathing, then your lungs stop working, your heart stops working, your blood stops clotting, your entire cardiovascular system fails. It is basically the worst thing that can happen to a pregnant woman. It happened to me. They finally got Zoe out of me, And everyone was shocked by the size of her head. It was bigger than they had anticipated. She was bluish in color. She was not breathing. She was passed off to the neonatal doctors who took her in a neighboring room where they were basically just patting her down and cleaning her up. They did not give her any oxygen. They did not make any attempts to resuscitate her because we had decided not to resuscitate her based on the very poor prognosis that the doctors had given her. In fact, I specifically signed a do not resuscitate. 
When the neonatal doctors were caring for Zoe, who was lying there, not breathing, the one of them who told me this personal interview I had with her looked up through the window into my operating room and she sees this man standing on top of me, pumping my chest. Everyone, she said at that point, is thinking, I'm going to die. Then the doctor looks back down just as I had stopped breathing and Zoe then started breathing. No oxygen, no resuscitation efforts, no nothing, but the child just started breathing. Zoe was born 13 and a half pounds with a head circumference of 63 centimeters. It's larger than an adult size head. You can measure yours later. Mine is 56 centimeters. She was responsive and was breathing and they prepared her for her baptism. Zoe was baptized in the presence of Jason, my husband, my sister Nikki, and Father Kevin Miller. I did miss the baptism. While Zoe was being baptized now, I was in the adjacent room where literally all hell was breaking loose. I was hovering somewhere between life and death for hours. My heart stopped pumping not once, not twice, But more than six times, there was a long line of doctors and nurses lined up aggressively, taking turns, pumping my chest to keep my heart going. Other doctors were pumping blood into my veins to replenish the gallons of blood pouring out of me. My medical records say I suffered immeasurable blood loss. Meanwhile, other doctors were trying to stitch me up to stop the bleeding, but every time my heart would stop, they'd have to stop the surgery so that they could resuscitate me again. Then they'd finally stitch me up, but I still wouldn't stop bleeding. I was essentially hemorrhaging to death, even though I've now been fully stitched up because my blood's not clotting because of the AFE. So then they decide they need to cut me back open again to surgically remove my uterus and to stop the bleeding while my heart is still stopping. So I'm undergoing massive, multiple surgeries while my heart keeps stopping. I suffered a loss of oxygen to my brain for a couple of hours on and off. No one knows exactly for how long. At some point during all this chaos, the doctors come out and announce to my family that I am down to a 10% chance of survival. Can only imagine poor Jason, my family, my friends. No one expected this. I had three young kids at home and now a fourth without a brain. Everyone I knew rushed to the hospital to see me one last time. And the doctors also said that of the 10% chance of survival, that I would most likely have permanent brain damage, severe neurological impairment due to the loss of oxygen to my brain. I was essentially going to be like the victim of a massive stroke. No one expected I would ever be the same. At 9 p.m. that evening, the following mass email, which was written by one of my close friends, went out to all my loved ones, many of who had heard nothing before they got this email. I'll read it to you. Imagine receiving it from one of your best friends. Dina is stable, but in extremely fragile and critical condition. The official diagnosis is AFE. She had six heart failures and resuscitations, complete circulatory system shutdown. She has had a hysterectomy and ovary removal, 
and she gave birth. She is still in a coma, is receiving oxygen through a ventilator, has a catheter in her heart, and is receiving constant blood transfusions as they do not believe they have stopped the bleeding yet. She will need multiple surgeries throughout the next 24 to 48 hours. By Thursday evening and into Friday, the word traveled fast of all that had happened. Over the next three days, I underwent another surgery because they couldn't stop the bleeding. I continued to remain in a coma. Hundreds of people came in and out of the hospital to support our family and to pray. The hospital finally did away with all their visiting rules. It had just turned into this major hospital vigil where people were praying everywhere for God's mercy and healing. Patrick Roach was there holding my cold hand, praying for me. He tells the story. He's a longtime res member. Bishop Stewart, I'm told, was at my side, placing a crucifix in my hand and praying for me. I hold that crucifix each night when I pray and thank God. On Sunday morning, day four, they brought me out of the coma and I was responding. They announced it here at Res. On Monday, day five, they extubated me and performed some cognitive testing on me to see how I was doing. I was able to count forward and backwards. I was able to speak in English and in Greek. And then I immediately started bossing people around again. <laughs> Over the next couple of days, Zoe was transferred to Anne and Robert H. Lurie's Children's Hospital, where she underwent major brain surgery. I, I don't remember any of this. Dr. Tord Alden surgically implanted a shunt in Zoe's brain to drain the extra fluid that was in her brain. Her skull did not collapse. She did great. The surgery was successful. Her heart never required any medical intervention and works fine. It's just kind of, instead of being over here, it's over here, and it kind of grew all the veins and attachments it needed to to just work just fine on its own. The medical professionals at the hospital were calling Zoe and I the miracle apprentice because no one could believe that the two of us left that hospital together alive. Now, while I was certainly pleased to be alive, I walked out of the hospital a mess. I went home with a pretty significant brain injury. I was stuttering. I was repeating myself. I had memory problems. I had no tolerance for noise. I wasn't able to think clearly. And at my side now was this baby with this big head and no visible brain tissue. And I'm anticipating caring for her the rest of my life because she's going to be brain dead forever. I've also lost my uterus. I've got multiple scars. I can't have any more children. It just felt like a lot of losses. 
Meanwhile, everyone around me was understandably elated that Zoe and I had made it. So everybody's going, it's a miracle. You're alive. Praise God. You know, everyone's so excited every time they'd see me. Meanwhile, I was not feeling so excited. I was each night staring at this baby in disbelief, thinking, why did this happen to me? Why did I personally have to suffer so much? Why did Zoe have to suffer now so much for the rest of her life with these major health problems? But over time, incredible things happened. Over the next 12 months, we watched through ongoing MRI imaging, Zoe's brain tissue regenerate. Little by little, her brain puffed back out from the outside in. So the head that had no visible brain tissue in it pretty soon was full of brain tissue. And then she continued to develop. She really seemed like a normal baby to me. She was smiling. She was developing in all areas. There is no way around the fact that Zoe's story is incredible. She talks, she laughs, she asks and answers questions. She's angelic. She doesn't have any pain. She's smart. She is reading. Can you believe that? She is bilingual. She speaks English and Greek beautifully. Beautiful enunciation, pronunciation. Everyone, all the doctors, are totally astounded by her progress. Now, the flip side to that hoopla is that Zoe does have major struggles. I'm going to say it. She is permanently physically disabled. It has taken me six years to admit that to myself. Denial is a powerful thing. Up until last year, I kept applying for the temporary disability parking placard because I kept thinking she's going to be up and running soon. Finally, I came to accept it is a permanent disability. She will probably have physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy for years to come. Everything in her development is essentially delayed. The size and weight of her head still prevents her from walking independently, so she uses the assistance of a walker to get around. She's in kindergarten now. She's in an instructional classroom, which means all the kids in the class have special education requirements. She's working on answering questions she's asked the first time she's asked, staying on topic, not repeating the same questions, and many other social skills. Her inability at this point to effectively utilize her speech impacts her ability to socialize and play with others very well, but she is continuing to make progress. And then there's my life, which has had joy and suffering side by side together for years now. I still have to carry Zoe in and out of her car. I have to place her in and out of her crib. I have to put her in and out of her high chair. I have to put her in and out of her walker. I have to stay at her side continuously so she doesn't trip on something, so that nothing's in her walkway. I have to watch over her. I have to help her with 
every single task with brushing her teeth, with washing her face. I have to work with the therapists, with the teachers, with the insurance, with the medical teams. It's exhausting. It's really exhausting. It's endless. This past fall, we reached our six-year all-time high. She was starting kindergarten. She would be in all-day school. I cannot tell you how excited I was. That first day I dropped her off, I practically peeled out of the parking lot. I was like, woo! <laughs> People probably thought I was nuts. I was so happy. I was full, full of joy. Not two weeks later, she suffered a prolonged seizure in her sleep, rendered her temporarily paralyzed on the left side of her body, lasted more than four months, putting her back in her wheelchair, taking her back out of school for a month. I spent months, once again, that's where we are right now, months once again, helping her do her exercises, trying to regain what she's lost, helping her pick up a goldfish, pick up a Cheerio, move her fingers. She is still currently in her wheelchair rather than in her walker due to this September injury. But you know what? We march forward. You march forward. You know what else? My marriage took a hit, a really big hit through this. The pressure that four kids has on a couple is incredible. Now, the pressure that one special needs child can have on a family is exponentially higher. That's really incredible. Put it all together, throw a brain injury on top, and you're in trouble. With a special needs child, someone is always on duty. We have been changing diapers for 12 and a half years straight. Zoe has been like a toddler in the amount of physical care that she requires for six years now. And it's not just the physical care. It's the emotional care, the cognitive development, how much longer things take, answering the same questions for her, trying to teach her new things. Uh, it's all incredibly time-consuming, requires extraordinary patience. I was verbally attacking Jason, my husband, to the point of abusing him for not helping enough with Zoe even though he was doing more than you would think is humanly possible for any man to do. Neither of us signed up for the task. That's the bottom line. And it frequently feels like an insurmountable task for both of us. But with God's help, we push through. We continue to push through day by day, one day at a time, which is what God calls us all to do, is it not? Today, Jason and I meet once a week for an hour just to talk about how are we doing, how are we doing with the kids, and we strategize for the week of how we can care for Zoe, care for our other kids, and care for each other. Not only did my marriage suffer, but so did almost all of my other relationships, some of who were my closest people, family, best of friends, we're not able, we're not willing, we're not capable, whatever, did not have the time, 
to support me in the way I needed support after Zoe was born. And you don't want support from just anybody. You want support from certain people. It's hard. It was hard. We were mad at everyone. When you have a child with special needs, that child becomes the center of everything. Zoe is the center of our family. We all work together, including my other three children now, to take care of her. Where's Zoe? What's Zoe's doing? Who's got Zoe? I've got to take a shower. Who's on Zoe? Who's got Zoe? Where is Zoe? It's like, who's on first? Where is Zoe? All the time. She can't be left by herself. Maybe that will change one day. She won't require so much care. Maybe, though, it won't. Honestly, I think the caring for Zoe has made us a better family. We are so tight. And I think we're all prepared. I know we're all prepared to care for her the rest of our days if that is what God calls us to do. I'm always telling the kids about how they'll be divvying her up in their old age, you know, and they laugh as I announce their responsibilities. No matter how she has turned our world upside down still, I want to tell you that I do consider having Zoe as my daughter to be one of my greatest privileges in this life. She's my privilege. I'm blessed to have her as my child. Don't look down on us. Jana says, don't make them feel sorry for us. Zoe turns six later this month. On January 26th is her birthday. I can tell you that in her six years, she has brought hope and love beyond measure to our family, to this church, to her schools, her preschool, her kindergarten. She knows everybody's name. She greets them all in the hallways. She has been riding this adaptive pink tricycle through the hallways of Mary and Joy Rehabilitation Hospital. You know, it's got her feet strapped in. She's strapped in at the waist. You know, she can't fall. We put her hands on the thing. She keeps them there now. She's she figured out how to ring that bell. And she cruises that thing around, talking to everybody, <laughs> asking them, what's your name? What's your mom's name? What's your last name? If they can't respond back to her, she says, can I have a hug? Can I have a smile? Can I blow you a kiss? And then when she, and they do, they blow her a kiss. She blows them a kiss. They smile. I mean, these are aged people who've suffered strokes, children that can't talk, that can't walk, Siamese twins, disabled babies, deformities, disabilities that you can't imagine, that we don't see in our everyday life. Zoe walks right up to everybody. She breaks down the barriers and she walks right to their faces and looks them in the face like no one else does sometimes and brings them joy that is incredible. And then she pronounces through the hallways while she's riding this tricycle, Mommy, I am happy. As far as we can tell, her life is 100% meaningful. By God's grace, and I cannot explain it in any other way, Jason and I agreed to keep her, to follow God in this struggle. 
It was going to disrupt our lives. It did disrupt our lives. But I'm thankful that God brought us together as a couple. And no matter how much we've suffered, I can tell you that we do not have any regrets because we really didn't do anything other than accept exactly what God gave us. We really didn't do anything other than accept exactly what God gave us. We have learned that we cannot plan our own story as hard as we try because only God knows our story. Things I planned on, like Zoe's funeral, did not happen. And things I didn't plan on, like suffering an amniotic fluid embolism or six cardiac arrests, did happen. And let's not kid ourselves for every incredible story like Zoe's, there are thousands of babies unable to talk, unable to walk, with severe sufferings. What about them? What about them? I cannot answer why they have to suffer. I wish I could. I can't. But I know that the babies were knit in their mom's wombs. I know that God finds their souls meaningful, just like he finds Zoe's soul meaningful. I know they deserve to live, just like Zoe deserves to live. But they need someone to share in their suffering. They can't do it without us. In addition to babies, there's other human beings, young, old. They suffer illness, aging, other disabilities which leave them unable to take care of themselves, unable to contribute to society. They're no longer deemed productive members of our society. Guess what? They still deserve to live. It's not our place to judge their lives. God will decide. Every soul matters to God. Every soul has eternal significance. All human life is created in the image of God and is therefore meaningful. Now, of course, I have no idea how any of this has made you feel or what your takeaway today might be. Here is what I know. My hope is best expressed in the scripture that was read earlier today, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I trust that my story of how God has worked in and through my suffering, my husband's suffering, our family's suffering, will somehow comfort you in any suffering that you are facing right now. Of course, I also hope that my story will encourage you to open your heart 
to open your home, to even give your life, if that is what God calls you to do, to the physically and mentally disabled, to the aging, and to the unborn. But above all, I want to bear witness to the goodness of God and the faithfulness of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.